So, two weeks ago was Valentine's Day. And one day, I was out shopping for a gift and a card for my wife, Sharon. And as in the store, and of course in the store, you can, you can always see the, the Valentine's gifts and card section because you just follow the, the red and pink you know, glow that's emanating from the shelves. And as I made my way there and I was looking for a card appropriate for my wife, and I saw one, picked it up, and on the front were all these roses, of course, and on the uh, cover, this was the inscription in all this fancy cursive. It said, to my one and only. And when you open it up, more roses. But the inscription inside said this. It said, I love you, and you will always be my only love. Happy Valentine's Day. Not bad. And set it aside and was looking at other cards. And while I was, this other guy came by. He was also looking for a card. He was kind of near me, and he was probably in his mid-30s. And I noticed that he actually grabbed that same card that I had been looking at. And he opened it up, and he was reading it intently. And I thought to myself, well, this is cool. Another guy that values long-term, lifelong commitment, values unconditional love and faithfulness. And so that guy actually did buy that card. The problem is, he bought three of them. <laughs> Think about that for a second. I got to tell you, uh, it, uh, I didn't see that coming. And uh, the unexpected often takes us by surprise. And it also tends to capture our attention. Such is the case as we read through the Gospels, as oftentimes happens. Jesus himself takes seemingly unexpected encounters and he lovingly turns them into powerful, holy moments that transform the lives of those he touches. He did so then, he still does so today. So as you're turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, now I'm going to be reading from the NIV this morning. If you're turning to Luke chapter 7, we're going to be looking at the back half of the chapter, but I want to ask you to do something with me this morning that's a little different. I want to ask you to imagine that you're hearing this story for the very first time, even if you're quite familiar with it. I want you to try and imagine that you don't know what's going to happen next. Or, or how this unexpected encounter is actually going to turn out. Allow yourself to take in the moment. Allow yourself to be there. Allow yourself to experience the drama and feel the tension that you're going to see here in a second is part of this. Because my hope is, when you do, you'll be better able to catch what Jesus has for us today, like he had for everyone in that room. Because I believe that he does have something for us. Something from this, this powerful and intimate display of how the gospel impacts a life, including our own. Okay? So to make this even more conducive to doing this and experiencing the moment as it happens, I'm going to actually read through this passage in increments, one verse at a time. So we're going to start Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Verse 36 reads this. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. 
And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Let's set the background for this. Where was this? Who was this man? And why the dinner invitation? This chapter finds Jesus smack dab in the middle of his teaching and his healing ministry throughout Galilee. Simon, the Pharisee, he lived in that area. He lived in Galilee. Now, Pharisees were some of the religious leaders at the time, and they took their religious regimen very, very seriously, and many of them saw themselves as morally elite. And by chapter 7, where we are here, there was already a good bit of resentment and tension from the Pharisees toward Jesus. They had seen Jesus heal people. They were miffed when they saw Jesus' followers doing things on the Sabbath like picking grain because, because they were hungry. It crawled all over these Pharisees when they would see Jesus hanging out with people that they considered sinners. And when he would, would, would dine with them, they thought no self-respecting man of God would be in close company with such unclean people. And most of all, to the Pharisees, Jesus was a blasphemer because he had claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. So if Jesus was persona non grata to the Pharisees, then why this dinner invitation? Was Simon like Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus spent time with Jesus, but Nicodemus sincerely believed that Jesus was sent by God. He came to believe this. He wanted to know more with sincerity of heart. Was Simon like Nicodemus? There's no evidence of this. It's far more likely that Simon, who, by the way, this is the only chapter in Scripture that Simon the Pharisee is mentioned. And it's far more likely that he was chosen from among his Pharisee skeptical brethren to get an audience with Jesus to be able to investigate him more, to further criticize him, to find reason to accuse him, or better yet, to trap Jesus. Now, it wasn't uncommon in this culture for local religious leaders like Simon to invite a visiting rabbi, this itinerant-type teacher, into their home. In fact, this was actually one of, just, uh, one of three different uh, situations where Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, was invited into the home of a Pharisee for dinner. Also in this culture... When, when this would happen, when this kind of a dinner would happen, people from the town were actually welcome to come by, to listen in. Now, they weren't invited to the table. They weren't invited to dine with them. But they were welcome to stand around the back of the edge of the room, or better yet, maybe listen through a window or be out in the courtyard to hear this visiting rabbi. So that was the situation. Now, inside the home, I want you to picture this. Inside the home, the room where this was, was going to take place, there was the table in the center. Now, the table wouldn't have been your, what we think of now as a dining room table with chairs around it. Rather, the table was very low to the ground. And Simon and maybe his family members, a couple other guests, and Jesus, you can picture them reclining. So you can picture Jesus reclining on some kind of a low-to-the-ground piece of furniture, something like maybe we consider a divan. Or most likely, it may have been like a long cushion. And he would be there with his head and his arms close to the table, propping himself up uh, by his elbows near his plate, but his legs and his feet, they would have been extended out away from the table. Okay, so that's the setting. So with this picture in mind, I want you to picture yourself 
among the people, watching what's taking place. You're, 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 in the, you're blending in with others. And this is what you would see. Verse 37, picking up. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at, at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. Who was this woman? Why, why would she do this? Now, most commentators would, would, would take the, the, the language that was used, her description as being a sinful woman, as meaning that she was most likely a local prostitute. So you can imagine the, the tension in the room when she walks in, when she arrives. How inappropriate. How uncomfortable. Especially when she doesn't stand in the back. She doesn't try to blend in. Rather, when she approaches and comes near Jesus. And as unexpected as her entrance was, so too were the tears that began flowing. Flowing without restraint. Flowing down her face as she knelt over Jesus' feet. So much so that his feet became damp from them. Makes you wonder, was, was this their first meeting? What was it that she knew about Jesus that would cause such an outpouring of strong emotion? And were they, were they tears of sadness? Or were they tears of gratitude and joy? The text doesn't specifically say, but there's so much that we can learn from the context that gives us clues. And from the context, because of it, I tend to think that this was not their first meeting. As we'll soon see, Jesus will refer to her expressions of gratitude and love as connected with her experience of already having been forgiven. We'll get to that in a few minutes. You see, Jesus had already spent a good bit of time in these villages and these towns teaching and preaching. He had many opportunities where she could have been there listening to him, many opportunities where he would speak about the kingdom of God, about repentance, about forgiveness, and about the love of a heavenly father. So it's quite likely that she had heard him speak in town, and you could imagine that she would be drawn to his words of truth and his words of grace that came out in all that he said and did. And as hard as it might have been for her to believe his message of the Father's love, hard to believe because of all that she had done, all that was in her past. Perhaps this message, this message of their Father's love, broke the hardened shell off of her calloused heart. Or perhaps they'd even had their own conversation we don't know this, but can't you just picture Jesus taking the opportunity, taking the initiative to speak directly to her, just like he did with the woman at the well, letting her know, letting her know that she no longer had to remain captive in her world of public sin and private shame. She didn't have to stay in her, her world of false intimacy, but true emptiness, because Jesus offered her a very different kind of love. A love that was pure, a love that was cleansing and healing, a love that was unconditional. And with that love and the forgiveness that comes with it, the hope of a very different future for her. 
It's quite likely that at some moment, some beautiful moment before the evening of this dinner, that that woman said yes. She said yes to forgiveness, yes to repentance, yes to God. And she went about beginning her new life. So soon thereafter, now, inside Simon's home, nothing was going to keep her, nothing was going to stop her from expressing and showing her love to her Savior. And that's exactly what she does. Ignoring the shocked and condemning glares that she got, no doubt, from the people that were there. Can you picture this with me? Can you, can you feel the tension? Can you experience the drama of the moment? The contrasts alone. Contrasts not just of the lifestyles of the different people there, but contrasts in the posture of their hearts. Over on this side of the table, where, where, where Simon's sitting, there's pride. There's contempt. Where over here, where the woman is bowed over, there's tender humility. There's brokenness. Over here, you've got a religious leader who's practicing image management in front of all these people that know him. Whereas over here, there's someone who is only aware of her audience of one. Over here, over here on this side of the table, there's self-righteousness. Where over here, where this woman is weeping on Jesus' feet, we see this display of genuine worship, the kind of worship that only flows from a powerful experience of the forgiveness and grace of Christ. And in this moment, in this moment of tension and contrast, let's see what happens next. Verse 39. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him at what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. As only a Pharisee could do, in one brief, sweeping, condemning judgment and verdict, he, he, he condemns both the woman and Jesus. Because as Simon suspected in his own mind, Jesus could not be legit. Because no prophet would allow such an unclean person to touch him. She is, after all, in his mind, a sinner. The label fits. That's how Simon saw her. He didn't see her, her tears of gratitude. He didn't see her, her tears of repentance. He didn't see a changed life. He only saw her past. He only saw her, her very public moral resume. He, he only saw the externals question for us. It's a tough one. How often do we sometimes do the same thing? How often do we look upon others through a similar grid? When we size up other people, when we compare them to ourselves, when we label people, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, I imagine that would probably fill up a whole other sermon. But I think in part we do this out of our own pride or our own insecurity or both. Because if we can label other people, if we can put them on a level where we compare favorably, we feel better about ourselves. Human nature? Maybe. But when we do this, when we find ourselves doing this, I think it should be like, like a, a dashboard 
warning light going off, signaling us that somewhere underneath the hood, if we open up the hood, we'll find that the gospel hasn't quite penetrated deep enough in our hearts because we may find ourselves more like the Pharisee than we want to admit. We may find ourselves, when we do this, trending more over to his side of the table. But our host, our host was about to experience a very unexpected interruption to his judgmental thoughts. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, how do you think Simon sounded right there? How do you think he sounded? Do you think he sounded sincere, teachable? I think he sounded something like this. Jesus, I'm really looking forward to, to the lesson that you're about to deliver. This lesson about the, con the condition of my heart in, in front of all these people here, all my friends. And gosh, maybe it can get written down in the Bible so that my heart can be on permanent display. <laughs> no, I don't think he probably sounded very sincere or teachable. But regardless, I don't think he anticipated Jesus' next play because the master teacher launches in to this amazing parable. Verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? No doubt you could have heard a pin drop in the, in the room at that moment. The comparison of the two was clear. 50 denarii, that was no small amount. That was the equivalent of two months' wages. But that was nothing in comparison to 500 denarii, the equivalent of two years' wages. Both, both were substantial. And Jesus, this is important, Jesus makes it very clear that regardless of that differential, that neither debtor had any hope or means of paying it back. And then Jesus drops an unexpected bomb on the people that were there listening. Because when he says that that moneylender, for some unforeseen reason, decides that he's going to drop the debts of both. Now picture yourself in that room hearing this parable for the very first time. You didn't know what, what, how it was going to turn out. You hear this and you're thinking, who does that? Why would this person just drop all those huge debts. Then Jesus puts it back on Simon when he asks him, Simon, which of them will love him more? All heads in the room turn toward the host. Now, Simon knows what the obvious answer to the question is, but he doesn't know where Jesus is going with this. Verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? We're going to pause here. He looks right at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. And Jesus asked him, do you see this woman? What a question. What a question. Was it, was it rhetorical? Was Jesus making some kind of a point? Of course he saw her. How, how could anyone miss her? But Simon, how do you see her? What does Simon see? 
He sees her past. He sees her moral scorecard. He sees her, her inappropriateness at even being in his home, tarnishing his home by her very presence. That's how he sees her. He sees her with disdain. He sees her with resentment and superiority. But Jesus sees her quite differently, doesn't he? Jesus looks right into her face, and he truly sees her. Just like he looked right into the face of the hemorrhaging woman who was on the ground who had grabbed him by his cloak, and he looked into her face, and he called her his daughter. He looked at this woman just like he looked into the crusted face of the leper as Jesus reached out to touch him as part of his healing. Just like Jesus looks right in the face of you and me when we come before his throne in need of mercy and grace, when he sees us coming to him with whatever is going on in our hearts and in our lives, he sees us. Jesus saw her, and he let Simon know that what he sees is a transformed heart, a grateful heart that has clearly embraced her need for forgiveness, her need for grace, the very things that Simon missed, the very things that Jesus wants Simon to see, because these are the very things that Simon himself needs. Jesus continues, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now, it's not that Jesus was personally offended by the things that Simon didn't do. That wasn't the point. But the water, the kiss, the oil, these were all just customary greetings, customary signs of hospitality. Because when someone visited your home, they, they could have well walked for a good bit, wearing just sandals through dusty paths, dusty roads. And when, when the guests would enter, welcome them, they would wash their feet. The kiss, a kiss on the cheek, was just a common greeting at that time. The oil, it was common for, for a host to put a drop of scented, inexpensive oil as an anointing on one's head when they walked into their home. But Jesus, he uses these contrasts to further paint this portrait of the difference between the woman and Simon in their response to him. See, she didn't put just a little bit of water over his feet to remove the dust she poured out her heart in tears because Jesus removed the stain of her sins. She had no towel. So her hair had the honor of drying her master's feet. She felt unworthy to, to kiss his cheek. And so in humility and subservience, she kisses his, his feet. And instead of using a common inexpensive oil to anoint his head, she takes this, this alabaster jar of perfume and she opens it and it's going to have a very, very different purpose than everything it had been used for before as she uses this to anoint the feet of her, of her Savior. 
She was living out the parable, a real-life picture of what happens and what it looks like when one understands how great a forgiveness that they've needed and how great a forgiveness they've received. Jesus summarizes all of this in verse 47 when he says this. He says, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And this is very important. What was Jesus saying here? Because it might sound to us like he's saying to the woman, because of your great display of love, because of all your gratitude, because of these things you've done here tonight, I'm going to grant you forgiveness. Because of all this, you've earned forgiveness. But that is not it at all. That's not at all. Jesus is saying that because that there, her great love that she's showing is a proportionate expression of her gratitude because of the forgiveness that she already has. The Greek word here for forgiven is in the perfect tense, which means that it is something that has happened. It is something that is currently happening and will continue happening. Plus, we know that from the whole of Scripture, that it is faith that saves us. And Jesus is going to actually affirm this in just a few verses down. You see, she didn't come that evening seeking forgiveness from Jesus. She came to thank Jesus for, Jesus for it by showing her love. And boy, did she. By contrast, there's Simon, who... For his part in this narrative, in this parable, apparently loves little. Question, was Simon only 10% in need of forgiveness? Was his debt of sin 90% less than hers? Maybe only in his own mind. 50 denarii or 500 denarii? From God's vantage point, he'd said that both debts... Neither of them could repay. They didn't have the means. They didn't have the hope. They were equal in desperation. But now she is free. And just like other times when people would hear or Pharisees would hear Jesus proclaim that someone was forgiven, verse 49 tells us that the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? A great question. A great question. But did Jesus take that moment to answer it? To defend himself? To prove his deity? No. He just went right on demonstrating his answer to the, their question by speaking eight life-giving words to the woman. He speaks eight life-giving words as verse 50 concludes our passage this way. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. No doubt, Jesus was once again looking right into her eyes, right into her face, as he's letting her know that because of your faith, you are now free. And you can look forward to a new life with a peace that she had never before known. And I imagine that she was going to have to play over in her mind and in her heart these words, because in the days, the months, and the years ahead, don't you just know that she was going to have to come back to these words as a way of combating the voice 
of the enemy, the enemy of her soul, the voice of the accuser. Satan, no doubt, would continue whispering in her ear things like this. You know who you are. You know what you've done. Look at you. You're still trash. It was going to be hard enough for this woman as she was going to to push forward to her new life in Christ. Hard enough because she was going to have to face some of the natural consequences that take place because of her years of sin. But this does not change the anchor of her new identity as a daughter of the king. Nor does it change the fact that she can go forth living a changed life because she's experienced the kindness of God that led her to repentance, as it says in Romans. Perhaps, perhaps there are times where you hear these dangerous whispers as well. Whispers that may sound like, who do you think you are? You know what you've done. Quit pretending to be someone that you're not. You don't deserve peace. Do you ever hear whispers like this? Because the enemy of your soul continues to accuse you because he wants to take back ground in your life that God has already taken. And it's times like this that we need to come back to those same words of Jesus too. We need to come back to the anchor of Jesus' words of truth to let us know that we are secure, we are saved, we can have peace because we turn to him in repentance and place our faith and trust in him. Eight powerful words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that's, that's how our passage ends, but the impact has just begun. The impact not just on the life of, of the woman, but also hopefully on the lives of everyone that was in that room. People like us. See, there's a reason I asked you to imagine that you were in that room because God has things for us to take away as well. How could we not be impacted by this woman, this woman who gets it in so many ways. Sure, of course, she was gonna have, she was gonna have a tough road ahead. But in what deeply matters, she gets it. The new love of her life was in fact Jesus. And he sent her out in peace so that she could begin a new life. She would never be the same. She gets it. And I think there's a very important takeaway for all of us to consider in light of her interaction with Jesus. A principle that I believe is just as applicable to us today, and it goes like this. Could it be, could it be that the depth of our worship with God, our worship of him, is often proportionate to how deeply we embrace our own need for God's grace? Let me repeat that. Could it be that the depth of our own worship of God and our love for him is often proportionate to how deeply we embrace and we grasp our own need for grace. I think the two are very connected. We saw this true in this passage. She loved much because she was forgiven much. Now, I'm not saying that we need to always express ourselves the way that, the way that she did. That not, may not be the way you do it. But I am talking about her posture, the posture of her heart. Because if you're like me, there are probably times where, you, where in your worship, whether in private, at home, or, or maybe at a place like this, in church, where your worship may be lacking a little bit, lacking some of the, uh, the love 
or the amazement or the gratitude that we saw true with this, poured out from this woman. And in times like this, I actually take comfort in looking at someone like, like King David. King David, a man after God's own heart, the author of most of the Psalms and many of our, our songs of praise and worship come from what he wrote. And yet even David expressed that there were times where his own worship of God seemed lacking, where he felt distant from God. And I also learned from David, because in those times, even in those low times, he comes before the Lord, as he did in Psalm 51, and his plea goes something like this. He said, restore to me, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. What a great prayer. And God answered it. See, lasting joy, lasting joy comes from appreciating and embracing the mercy of God. And when we do, when we do, the richer will be our worship of him. That's what we saw in the woman. And may we learn from how she loved God, how she worshiped God. But as much as I am impacted by the woman, because you know, she gets it, I'm also impacted by Simon because he missed it. See, I, I'm sad for Simon, partly because I was once a lot like him. I was. See, Simon, like Simon, well, there was a time that if God had not, in his grace, helped me to see how I was missing it, I would have missed it forever. Because there was a time when I was counting on my own religious performance as my ticket to peace with God. I was a very committed, church-going young man. I was very consistent in behaving and living out what many would call the Christian life. I did all the things that good Christians were supposed to do, and I avoided all the things that they weren't. People would have seen me as a pretty nice guy. I don't, I don't know anybody who would have said, teacher's a hypocrite. I could have told you about all the facts about how Jesus died for everyone, and I thought, I guess I'm part of that, everyone. But I had no real peace. I had no real peace. Because in my mind, God had not yet given me the grace to see something. But when he did, he began to show me that to any degree that I was trusting in my own morality as part of my salvation, to that degree, there was complete blockage of my grasp of the gospel. And that's when Jesus made it crystal clear to me that if he had not gone to the cross for me, I had no hope. If Jesus hadn't gone for the cross, to the cross for me, I would have never known that I needed, I needed the cross, not one drop of Jesus' blood less than anybody else. I needed grace. I needed forgiveness. And I figured that if I had never before understood the significance of that, then most likely I probably never really understood the gospel. And that was the day that I transferred my trust. I transferred my trust from my own Christian morality that I was working so hard for, and I laid that at the foot of the cross. And after that, my external lifestyle really didn't change that much because, as you recall, I was already behaving like good Christians do, but there were two very big changes. One, I finally had a sense of peace with God, and that never changed. And two, 
because of my understanding of my own need for grace, I began more readily extending grace to other people. Maybe some of you can relate with where I was because maybe some of you have worked really hard at living out this Christian life. You've worked really hard at doing all the right things. You know all the right doctrine, but perhaps you might lack peace with God because if we take an honest look, in reality, you might put more of your trust in your morality and your ability to do these things than you put in his finished work on the cross. If that might be where you're at, you can go before him and confess that to the degree that you put any confidence in yourself, any confidence in your performance, your morality, that you can turn that over and place that at his death and his resurrection, the finished work on the cross. You can embrace for yourself the words that Jesus told the woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. Because today we watched as this unexpected guest who had encountered unexpected grace showed this, this unexpected display of gratitude and love toward Jesus. So how might we be different because of it? May God give us the grace Give us the wisdom and the humility for us to learn from her to become more like this transformed woman. That we would love and worship God from a deeper understanding of and a deeper appreciation for who God is and all that he's done for us. Because we have been forgiven much. Let's pray. Lord, thank you right now for your truth, and your grace. Lord, it's how you, were, how you were introduced to the world in John's gospel, that you came in truth and grace, and everything that you did and said displayed this. It's how you related with, with this, this woman. It's how you relate with us today. It's how you pursue us. It's how you draw us. It's how you change us. Lord, may we respond with gratitude. May we respond with, with love, with obedience, and with worship as people who rightly reflect the way that you have changed our lives for your glory and our good. Amen.